Jessica Hopper started writing about music when she was still in high school. Her professional writing career now spans more than two decades in a field that doesn't include many women at all. As a pioneer in the field of music criticism, she examines the music of women in many contexts, from songwriters to producers, through an intersectional feminist lens. The 2021 extended and revised edition of Hopper's 2015 collection titled The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic includes oral histories, interviews, profiles, and more. Jessica Hopper has covered wide-ranging subjects over her long and respected career, everyone from Hull to Bjork to Fiona Apple. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. It's Jessica Hopper's story itself that seems as fascinating as any on the pages of her book. I spoke to her from her home in Chicago about the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. You said this is a very different collection uh, than the 2015 one. This is the it's the revised and expanded edition. It still covers such a wide swath of your nonfiction. But it is very different. Do you want to talk about some of those differences for folks? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the collection from 2015, the the original version, um, it came from a different place uh, as a writer. Uh, it was really uh, a book that um, I really felt like I had a lot to prove, even though I was about 20 years into my career because I started as a teenager. I... With this new edition, it was deeply informed, you know, in the editorial process of putting it together. It was really deeply informed by what I came to understand in the wake of putting out the first edition of it. I got to go all around the world. You know, I went to four continents, seven countries. You know, I did like 60-some dates in America alone. And at all of these things, I, I really, I got to encounter my audience and really get to know uh, who reads my work and why and have a lot of really deep conversations, uh, in particular with young women who were reading my work and had been reading my work and finding out what they took from it and how it spoke to them and, you know, uh, and, and what they disagreed with. And all of that sort of right, right-sided right something. You know, I came up um, in a very male-dominated, very patriarchal um, world of music criticism. And so decades of, of, of writing in that world had had sort of um, distanced me from even knowing my audience. You know, writing is a very sort of hermetic practice. Uh, And so it wasn't merely, you know, the validation, but of of meeting my audience and an eager audience. But really it gave me permission to write to them rather than, you know, a lot of my earliest pieces, including, you know, Emo, Where the Girls Aren't, and um, even in some ways, my my interview with Jim David Goddess about R. Kelly, you know, two of the pieces that people really tend to know if they know my work, you know, those were really in some ways really petitioning for um, 
men uh, in in the music industry to sort of, you know, uh, appreciate women as fans, as participants in music, as, uh, you know, uh, kind of petitioning for humane treatment, be seen as fully human and and uh, and for our experiences in music to really be valued. And what I was able to do, you know, come into this this book, the second edition of the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. Coming into the second edition of, of it, we really got to remake the book with the knowledge of who receives my work in the world. And that was just a huge gift. It was very freeing. And it allowed me to go even deeper into my feminist work and to be... Um, confident and unapologetic about it and it was uh you know there's a there's a uh and that's part of the reason there's more work in it also the other book i think i i was very shy about putting more recent work in my 2015 book so it sort of stops at like about 2012 but i think in a lot of ways um some of my most important work came after that point um and a lot of my things that are a little bit more uh historically facing, uh, you know, my, my interview with Bjork and my piece on the first five women who were on the editorial masthead at Rolling Stone and my interview with Lido Pimienta. And, um, and so it was very, it was, it was really exciting for me to be able to, um, go back and look at my whole career again with some in some ways fresh eyes and a new sense of permission and so that's part of the reason that you know mm-hmm. the previous book i think is around 200 some pages and this one's 450 you know it's it's really um i just got to cultivate it anew and that was a huge huge gift for me um that was deeply informed by my readers and dialogue with my readers Wow, that's so uh, instructive. I mean, it's profound, but it's also instructive in the same way as something that you say in your afterword that I've jotted down, and I I wanted to make space to say it here. You were doing an interview with Ian McKay, and you say that you were asking him questions that were really covert requests for advice. And something that McKay relayed to you was that you have to, quote, keep your head down, do your good work, stick to your principles, and the people who are looking for that work will find you. So then you moved to Chicago and set about basically to live out this idea. Seems like you were young to do this and that you endured a lot for your success, but you know, this is in your afterword, and I kept, you know, sort of rereading essays, rereading some of some of what's in the book, and thinking about, wow, Jessica Hopper was here, and Jessica Hopper did that, and wondering how much at the fore of your mind was this idea. I mean, this is really a mantra to live by. Uh, keep your head down, do your good work, stick to your principles, and people who are looking for that work will find you. Do you still think about that in 2021? Oh yeah, oh yeah, and you know, uh, above my, above my desk, there's uh, only two pictures of artists, and one is very young, Prince against a wall in Minneapolis, and the other one is Ian Mackay's band Fugazi playing at the Washington Monument, 
Um, and so that, that mantra, as you called it, um, has really guided me, though there's certainly been times where I um, was further from it, but I, it really has been something that I've, that I've strived for, um, in part because, uh, you know, Ian Mackay's band, Fugazi, was hugely, hugely important to me in showing me that those words were true. And, um, you know, there were, there were certainly times where um, the critics of my work were much, much louder uh, in the real world and sometimes in my head than, um, than the people who were really connecting with my work over the last, you know, 20, uh, 25, 29 years. I started writing when I was 15. And, um, and I think in some ways those words are, to me, as resonant as they were at 19. Um, I think like a lot of people uh, that I know that are artists and writers coming out of the other side of hopefully the other side of this pandemic and this really intense time, um, you're returning, you know, I'm returning to um, really what I know to be true about my art and my work and my um, community. And so those words really hold true because I, I um, you know, as much as I have to, uh, um, promote work, certainly, you know, and some of that is not quite like keep your head down. But um, mm -hmm. I really, I really know and can trust and believe because I have, I've have this lived experience that uh, the people who my work resonates with, in particular, young women and, and women and young folks in music, who've had to really endure a lot to be there. You know, they're looking for feminist histories. You know, I found I found Ian McCarr's, you know, advice to me to be to be invaluable and true. Um, it very much matches up with my lived experience of putting out uh, this, you know, the book in 2015, and and I found it to absolutely be true that people, you know, particularly um, in my experience. Uh, young women and young folks and women, um, feminist folks in music, they are desperate to connect with an earlier generation of feminist work, of um, the experiences and travails of uh, women artists, um, queer histories, and some of those similar things that we have in the book and, you know, in part because um, music culture is inherently patriarchal, one of the functions of patriarchy and, you know, male-dominated cultures is that it seeks to cut off uh, women's, you know, uh, cut people off from an earlier generation of women's wisdom and experience so that all people who were coming into that scene or coming into, you know, that genre or whatever, um, they're forever having to kind of start over and dig and, um, you know, from uh, activists and music, reinvent the wheel. Um, 
because there's just been so much erasure of women's work. And so I think um, for me, one of my big goals with the book, with the second edition of the first collection, was to put a lot of historically facing work about women and feminist work and act and activist work within um, music and especially the American underground, because if people can connect to that, then they can build off of it. But you've been doing this since you're 15 years old, you know, and you did so. <laughs> yes, <in> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so I wonder, like, how how much of that in getting started and just, just deciding you were you were going to push your way into this world was just, you know, you at 15 years old saying, I'm going to do this and not so, you know, not so concerned about the barriers, just kind of maybe, I don't want to say oblivious to them, because I'm sure, I'm sure there was plenty standing right in front of you getting in your way. But there you were, 15 years old, without a formal education in like rhetoric or in mass communication, um, and then you stayed with it, right? I mean, it was it wasn't just like a little hobby. You did this, you know, until you graduated from high school or whatever. You stayed with it, and so I, I feel like your story is so singular to begin with, um, and so difficult. Must have been. Like, that's what I think about, like, you know, there's so many biopics and so many music documentaries that you can uh, stream now. And I, but I was thinking, like, where's the Jessica Hopper uh, story? <laughs> that's the one I want to see. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering about that. Like, have there been obstacles and burdens because of this? Because you started so young, or did you were you able to just overcome and form like this shield against it in twenty twenty one? Like you're just immune now, you know? And oh, I mean, I wish I was immune in certain ways. So I think I think the big my big two or three influences towards. Uh, getting started doing this, continuing to do it and, and, you know, survival through the parts that were really difficult. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I have to credit my Montessori education. Uh, uh, I was a Montessorian up until eighth grade. And one of the things, one of the, the key tenets about Montessori is you learn by doing interested in doing something okay start doing it and you figure out how it works or it doesn't work you know failure was a phenomenal teacher and I also because of that I just it's not so much that I was so confident I mean as a teenager I was probably overconfident um actually I know I was overconfident <laughs> about my work but it was more like this is part of the process and then another part of it was coming up at a time you know, dawn of the 90s in Minneapolis, which had a really thriving uh, punk and DIY hardcore scene historically there. And I knew a lot of people that did fanzines. And I also, the people that I really respected in the in the scene there, there was, they really helped kind of create a, a tenor or an attitude, a, a, a culture within the punk scene there that even though it was fairly male dominated, um, the idea was is that if you were part of this, you you weren't just a consumer. 
you had to be a participant because, you know, if I wanted bands that I love to keep coming to Minneapolis, you know, I had to cover them when they came through, or I had to write about them in the alt weekly, or I, you know, we, everybody had to do their parts, not just buy a ticket. You had to start a band. You had to put bands up. You had to, um, you know, help. It was sort of like, it was everyone's responsibility to kind of administrate, uh, (laughs) for, for lack of a better word, facilitate all of this. It was a really, um, it was collective work. And so doing a zine, while there were people that were like, oh, you know, she's a gadfly and she's a brat and, you know, kind of older, older guys who considered themselves gatekeepers for the scene. And there's always, there's always those guys, you know, mm-hmm. and, and really that was about, you know, as I write in the afterward, they wanted me to, some of that is like, they wanted me to think they were cool they wanted me to abide by their rules, but more than anything, they wanted me to acquiesce and believe in their hierarchy and their systems. And at that time, uh, you know, I was 15, 16 years old, was right at the start of Riot Girl. was, you know, right at the insurgence of Bikini Kill, Bratmobile, mm-hmm. Babes in Toyland, um, a lot of um, exciting uh, bands from women, a lot of queer core bands, especially coming out of the Bay Area, you know, there was just so much for me to connect to, and Fugazi, of course, mm-hmm. that was not the world of these guys, that wasn't these old punk rules of how you have to do it, of the right way, you know, and also I was 15, 16 years old. I fundamentally was going to have issue with basically anything any adult told me. And so that really, that really um, kind of set a lot of things in motion. And some of the, you know, some of these human barricades, <laughs> some of these, you know, doubting people, some of these people that tried to, you know, um, circumvent my success or my way forward into to writing um, and to music journalism from the time I was a teen until, you know, I don't know, my mid thirties. Um, I could, I could usually see them coming and their what they would say and what they would do to try to, you know, get in my way or discourage me. It was always the same. It was always the same spiel or it was just so predictable Mm -hmm. that I could sometimes just work around it. And I look back now at 44 and I really wonder sometimes what could I have gotten done (laughs) if I hadn't spent so much time having to fight for byline space, um, a decent wage, you know, like, for, for my writing, um, for so much of that, you know, that formative time. Um, but I'm grateful for it because it, it, I think it really, I mean, I think, unfortunately, my experience is a really typical experience lots of times for young women in journalism, uh, for plenty of people coming into the music industry and uh, the music scene historically, 
And so um, I think that makes, you know, the stories of, of people's survival and people's struggles that are, that are particularly women's struggles that are so, um, so much of this new edition of the first collection really important because it helps create it, it for me it's helped it's helped substantiate a lineage when um the worlds that i work in that that lineage is constantly being erased mm-hmm. um or not preserved or not held up and valued and so um yeah i, I you know i'm not i'm not teflon i'm not you know i think i say it in the afterward it was like my a lot of it was just functional denial, hmm. but also some of it was knowing what I'm doing, uh, what I'm doing for myself in this writing is the, is the right thing. It's the right thing for me. This is what I feel called to do. You know, this is my calling. Um, I don't have a lot of other skills. <laughs> so it, it, I just, it was always just what I was just doing what I had to do, just like any other art. And very, very fortunately, um, I've been successful at it and um, and found a readership again and again. Yeah, you're extremely prolific. And that's something I, I'm struck by going through, you know, the 400 pages. And this isn't even all of your work. And the versatility of the writing is something that I'm always struck by. So... I honestly think that your book, I'm not, and I'm not just saying this, I've said it to a few people in the last couple of weeks, should be like required reading in colleges and universities because of that, you know, the shifts in the subject matter and the ways that, you know, you address the structure or the focus. Or I listened to an interview with a historian who said that He's prolific because he loves to write. Like, he loves history yeah. as a historian, but he loves to write. So you obviously love music, but you must love to write, I imagine. And You know, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, right now coming back to the... Uh, the drafts of um, my next next book, which is about women in music in 1975, mm-hmm. and kind of daunted by it, um, in part because you know during this uh, pandemic time, um, I have uh, two younger children uh, who are in grade school and have been home with me every day, nonstop for 15 months, and so um, you know the amount of, amount of real writing. I got done during that time. It's like, you know, <laughs> maybe 10 hours. So I'm really, um, right now, I've, I was I starting to feel some real like, oh, God, why have I done this? <laughs> you know, I, I tell um, my, I, I was telling my friend Carvel Wallace, who's an author and critic as well, who's working on a book I'm very excited about, a cultural memoir. And I was saying, you know, you're not really deep into writing a book unless you're fantasizing about the sort of jobs you could get or things that you can sell to pay back your book advance so that you don't have to write it. And so I love writing. <laughs> I love writing, but sometimes the process of doing books, it's like, it's, it's the highest highs and the lowest lows of, um, of writing, you know, but I love writing about music 
in a way that yes, I just love writing. I love it when I when I feel like I'm kind of hitting a rhythm on the page. Mm. You know, when I'm on my third revision of something and I go, aha, that's it. And it's like I've unlocked something in my thinking or or come upon a phrase that sort of coalesces something I've been thinking about for a long time that's sort of like this, you know, it's like having something stuck in the back of my teeth, <laughs> you know, that you're just sort of working at and you're like, aha, I have it, okay. Um, and, and that, you know, I mean, that's, it's like nothing else. It's like nothing else. It's an ecstatic sort of joy for me. And then the secondary joy of it is because, you know, my work is public facing, you know, I'm either publishing things online or in books or, you know, um, through things that I write for podcasts or other documentary stuff that I do. I hear back from people. I see how my work is received in the world or, you know, I'm in line at the Chipotle and somebody's <laughs> like, hey, I read your book in that piece about da da da. You know, every once in a while, that just happened to me on Monday. So, um, <laughs> for example, and um, I get to be in dialogue with people about music and big ideas and what they believe in and what they hate and what they love. And it's like, I mean, I, I, I love talking about music with people. I love arguing about music. <laughs> so it's just... Um, all the parts of it, all the parts of it are really, it sounds hokey to say, but it's just a gift. It's just a gift. I'm so grateful I get to do this. I'm so grateful I get to publish. It, show, it shows in your work. It really does. In my day, there was Cream Magazine. There was, mm-hmm. Ro- there was Rolling Stone, right? I, and I used to think that Cream was probably the magazine everyone really wanted to be in. And that Rolling Stone was still the pinnacle. And I remember my friends and I, my sister and I read those magazines and they were so important to us. And we would just like pass around, you know, issues that were a year old or whatever. Um, um, Do people read about music like that? I don't know. I was thinking about how I feel like with social media, we have so much information about our favorite artists. I used to sit in the Mm -hmm. library for hours going through microfiche to find like the October 1975 issues of Time and Newsweek to see Bruce Springsteen on the cover and read those stories. Oh, yeah. Stories. And now, you know, I can see what he's doing on Instagram. I mean, it's just a very different kind of access and and it makes me think about like how much I appreciate your sensibility and your experience still with some of these pieces about albums um and the magic of listening to an album straight through um now with music streaming you know there's emphasis on the single and I think about how maybe my generation perceives that something is lost like what's missing now digital natives and the younger generations maybe they don't miss it you know they don't they they didn't have it so maybe they don't miss it so I feel like there's a lot that sort of typifies changes in the music scene and how you 
that this has contributed to your own um, paradigm shifts in your mm-hmm. writing career and how you, is it just something that you sort of look at and say, okay, and, and you adjust, you, you know, you, you go mm-hmm. with it because you have to, because you're writing about it. And this is just the way the world really works. Things change. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's, I think, well, that's uh, pretty astute. You know, I mean, there's the, when I, back when I, you know, briefly uh, worked a pitchfork, you know, we would just talk about um, people are less interested in criticism. You didn't need to care about what, uh, you know, pitchfork rated something because you could go on Spotify or Apple or whatever platform, Bandcamp, and just stream it. You know, so you didn't, you didn't have to, because it was just immediately accessible. And so, um, in some ways the album review, which in some ways I think is my, is my true milieu Mm -hmm. as a writer, Mm -hmm. um, is just not as nearly as important as it was, you know, as you're talking about in 1972, uh, you know, when there were, um, you know, four or five sort of big underground music Bibles that people people could um, use to to guide them in their their purchases because you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't hear something unless it was on the radio and lots of times things that people cared about just weren't and um, there was a lot more you know until I would say the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, there was much more of a gulf between um, the underground and the mainstream. Media, music, everything. And so um, me being someone who's at the real tail end of Gen X, you know, all my earliest writing was, uh, you know, every everything was analog. You know, mm-hmm. I... I would read my drafts. If, if I had like revisions to a draft, I would have to call my editor and read them over the phone. Or, <laughs> um, I mean, I remember mailing, typing up my reviews and mailing them to my editor across town or going up to the Kinko's and faxing it. You know, I mean, it was really um, a different sort of, <laughs> it was a whole different situation. But also, um, I th- I think now people generally have a different uh, young music fans have a different relationship with criticism, which is uh, for a lot of reasons. One, younger listeners now, I think, um, particularly Gen Z, are really skeptical of the music history that's been handed to them. And in some ways, they're more interested in in digging in and, um, you know, searching to the bottom of the Internet to find out um, what the real story was and kind of form their own opinions, which I think is really interesting. Um, though there's plenty of bands that have no kind of digital record, you know, or are kind of on the other side of that digital divide. Um, and so, you know, that in some ways it sort of flattens history. I think, Hmm. I think that's one, one part, you know, another part is that, that, um, because of social media, artists do not really talk talk to journalists anymore. You know, John Caramonica did a big piece on it in the New York Times. He's one of the pop critics there. And about, 
you know, cover stories on big magazines from big artists, they don't really want to be interrogated or held up to the light. And so they have a famous friend interview them. Uh, there's generally much fewer music publications in general. And um, there's a lot less work for critics in general, for arts critics across the board. I feel especially bad for dance critics. Um, and, you know, I think the other the other part of it, too, is that um, being a critic right now, especially being a young critic, I think can be very, very daunting because there's, um, you know, a kind of online stand culture, um, you know, fan bases that might come after you if they don't, if a if an interview seems like you're you're asking a question that makes the artist bristle a little, or you know that isn't purely fawning, or any review mm-hmm. that takes any part of the artist's image or you know choices to task at all, um, you know I know plenty of people who've been doxed by the online hordes or super fans, you know, <laughs> in particular um, Taylor Swift and others, uh, but. You know, for me, a few years ago, uh, particularly in the wake of the first edition of this book, you know, I felt like I had accomplished a whole lot of what I had, you know, even in my wildest dreams kind of set out to do in my critical career. And I started to become, um, you know, one, daunted by having to constantly have an opinion about Taylor Swift or whoever that just wasn't super interesting to me because we're in a very celebrity dominant time within music. Um, I've always been more interested in people who've really stuck around and kind of been in the trenches of underground music. Those are the things that inspire and interest me. Um, and, and in history, more and more in history, music history. And, um, and so because of that, how I've adapted, you know, uh, to all of that is that I just got much more interested in um, podcasts, oral histories, longer form things that were just things you could do in places I could go in my work and my writing that allowed me to write at length, to go much more deeply rather than going, you know, look what someone put on their Instagram or look at, you know, being tasked with like asking, you know, pop superstars, are you a feminist? Or, you know, the sort of pieces that I was getting tasked with or endless, you know, I got asked to do just tons and tons of Me Too reporting after R. Kelly. And it was just, it was a level of arduousness that I couldn't do. And also I just wanted to do other, other things, other kinds of writing. And so, um, I've constantly just been moving towards what's the thing I don't really know how to do. How do I learn how to do that? And I love producing. I love making documentaries. I love making podcasts. I love editing books. I love making books. Um, and, and part of that is, is, um, you know, the, the critic and the music super fan of me is like, I want to read things that are a big idea that go on for 40,000, 50,000 words or half an hour of a podcast or something. You know, I, I miss that richness that um, there's not a lot of places for that kind of music criticism anymore. Very, very few. 
And so um, I've continually um, sought that out and kind of sought the uh, sought new climbs with that to pursue. Who's uh, someone whose music you listen to that would surprise us? Because we, I feel like I kind of know, like you have very. <laughs> well, I think everybody this thinks is, they this know. Is, uh, you know, this is maybe. I mean, this sounds like a total joke, but you know, there were some times. There are many times during our little, during our wee pandemic, during our epic pandemic, where I just wasn't even listening to music. You know, this kind of um, think like a lot of people there were times where I just felt very fried and very mm-hmm. like delicate very tender and so um I kind of listened to the same few things that would surprise no one you know <laughs> Octo Twins Galaxy 500 um you know some old just like my old comfort faves listening Cowboy Junkies but I got really into my, probably my number one most listened to record of the last 15 months is it's called Wind Chimes of the Australian Outback. Hmm. And I believe it is a recording. It's like a field recording of wind chimes in the Australian Outback. It is uh, an animal landscape that doesn't sound super familiar to me. <laughs> you know, I don't even know if these are real wind chimes. If they are, the, someone miked and mixed them beautifully. <laughs> and there's a little wind. And so that's probably the most surprising thing that I love. I found it deeply comforting. Uh, you know, anybody who would have walked past my home office would have been like, why does it sound like, you know, a massage spa in there? Um, <laughs> it, but that was my jam. That was my jam. I love, I discovered that I love to listen to wheel, uh, to I discovered I love to listen to wind chimes. Um, who knows if this will last past the pandemic? I'm definitely listening to a lot more, you know, contemporary music and kind of getting back up to speed um, now that I feel like I have the uh, temerity, the spiritual bandwidth, the emotional bandwidth. Um, and so uh, who knows if I'm going to keep my my wind chimes playlist <laughs> in deep well, during the pandemic, we all heard about the Linda Lindas, that teen punk girl group. Yes. Oh, I love them. I love that they got a record deal like four days after everybody heard about them. You know, you really can't deny them. You can't deny that, man. Yeah. So what do you think about them? They're just, we needed them, right? We needed them. But also, you know, things are happening so fast for them. I'm kind of, um, uh, you know, part of me is like, you know, protect the Linda Lindas. Um <laughs> That energy of the Linda Lindas and their sound reminds me so much of early era Riot Girl bands and, you know, teen punk basement bands that were everything to me as a young punk fan, kind of trying to figure out where they fit <laughs> in this macho hardcore punk world that I was in. And you know, as I'm so excited for the Linda Lindas and all that they're going to inspire in the people that hear them. It's really kind of incredible, even in 2021. So Jessica Hopper, tell me, this is a, a very unfair question, but what's one thing, if there was just one thing you wanted readers of this book to walk away with 
when they when they turn the last page? What's that one thing? A hunger to go put on some of the records that I wrote about and f- and figure out how they think and feel about them. Jessica Hopper, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Yvette. This has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. Jessica Hopper is the author of the revised and expanded edition of The First Collection of Criticism by a Living Female Rock Critic. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>